0: Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. I'm Heather Horn. Today, we're talking about cryptocurrency and how this emerging asset class, as it continues to gain more mainstream acceptance in the markets, may affect your financial statements. My guests today are Beth Paul, a PwC National Office partner, and Kevin Jackson, a director in PwC's Capital Markets Practice. And with that, let's get started. (music) So Beth and Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today for a topic that I think keeps coming up in the news and is top of mind for many people, and that's cryptocurrency. But before we get into crypto, I thought we could start with a topic that's related and often confused, and that would be about blockchain. And we've talked about blockchain on past podcasts, but maybe just as a brief introduction, Kevin, could you explain some of the basic concepts in terms of what we mean when we say blockchain and maybe how that relates to crypto.
1: Yeah, you bet. So I think the word blockchain in general is sort of a jargon term, right? But really what it's getting at is it's a special type of database that records transactions. So what makes blockchain different from a record of transactions that say like stored in an Excel file is the way that that information is created, how the people that use the database agree on what's there. And blockchain is sort of this technology that's valuable because it represents a mechanism to share and record information about transactions in a way that's open, it's transparent, and it's immutable, which is also kind of a jargon term, which just means it's permanent, right? It's digitally etched in stone. And that is something that is pretty unique for the way databases are stored and and monitored um, relative to the way things were before blockchain. So all the parties that look at a blockchain can agree and view the ledger and they know what's there and it's not changing. And the kind of abstract concept behind it is that it removes this need for a centralized administrator or an intermediary that's trusted to facilitate or certify that the transactions that are going on that ledger are valid. Underlying all this is the engine. The mechanism behind all this is some fairly complicated math, which I don't don't pretend to understand, but that's what's underpinning it and ensures that there's a really, really low likelihood that anybody would be able to fraudulently manipulate that shared database. Heather, the podcast you did with Scott Likens was great. So I would direct listeners to go out and listen to that one as well. Scott did a great summary on on blockchain fundamentals as well. So if listeners are interested in that, they, they could look there for additional detail too.
0: Yeah, because as soon as you start talking about it being immutable, the first thing that always comes to mind for me is, okay, but what if there's a mistake? <laughs> and that is something that's, that Scott and I uh, talked a little bit more about. And not necessarily something we need to get in more here, but I do think from an audit perspective, that's the first thing I thought of was like, Oh my gosh, but what happens if something goes wrong? So then, Kevin, in the context then of blockchain, cryptocurrency is something I know we've been talking about for a few years and lots of different aspects of it. But what is the current landscape in terms of when we talk about different cryptocurrencies?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, the headline grabbers are always like, what is the price of Bitcoin on any particular day? it's so volatile, and it's going up, it's going down. And so I think, you know, that, that's one example, but there's a lot of, you know, widely traded digital assets that are out there. You know, recently in January, the market capitalization as measured by a variety of websites was over a trillion dollars. And that was kind of the latest uh, tipping point for a lot of Uh, people that are looking at the crypto markets. But while there's all these headlines and all-time highs and price volatility, I think there's a broader story that's interesting. And that's that's more so around the institutional or increasing institutional use and broader acceptance of digital assets. And there's this old adage, right, about how new ideas pass through different stages on their way to acceptance. And you start off first and the idea is laughable. Then you fight against the idea. And then finally, after all that, it's considered self-evident. And I'd say with digital assets, we're probably beyond the laughable stage. I'd wager that there's many more people that are saying that the benefits of digital assets are becoming more and more self-evident. And we're seeing a lot of involvement from a lot of different professional disciplines that are helping make that slow trudge up the slope of enlightenment, sort of borrowing terms from Gartner and the hype cycle. And with all that, though, I think you know the best place for listeners is probably to start on just what's happening in the regulatory jigsaw puzzle here in the United States. Over the past year, we've observed that a lot of government agencies are increasing their involvement with digital assets. And at first blush, it may seem like, well, that's just an enforcement issue, but actually we're seeing a lot of engagement around providing clarity for how digital assets will be treated within a variety of uh, regulatory jurisdictions. So to start, I think maybe it'd be good to just talk a little bit about what's happening with the SEC. On the SEC front, we've seen this push and pull, right? You have a desire to foster innovation and enable that, but there's also a need for strong protections for consumers. And so there's a lot of activity that's that's related to ensuring that issuers of digital assets, the, the folks that are creating them and, and distributing them, are not intentionally or unintentionally selling unregistered securities, things that would be treated as a a security for legal purposes when you think about the 1934 and 1933 Securities Acts. And this issue, I can't understate how fundamental and important and critical it is. It's very complex and challenging and requires a lot of legal involvement. Luckily, that's not me, but there's lots of uh, lawyers that have been dedicating themselves to, to researching these issues and guiding companies through that. Um, In addition, we've seen a lot of regulatory movement with the SEC issuing guidance that would allow special purpose broker dealers to actually custody digital assets while still complying with the rules that require them to protect uh, those assets against loss or theft. And with digital assets, it's just a little bit more complex. It's not a paper, physical paper that you have sitting with yourself, right? There's a lot of cybersecurity issues that are important to ensuring the safety of digital assets. So the SEC has um, looked to provide some clarity on that to ensure that those broker dealers can do so while still complying with the law. One thing that might be interesting is that we've seen one of the SEC commissioners in particular propose rules that would provide a safe harbor for issuers of digital assets to make sure that they don't run afoul of those securities laws. Now, this isn't a final rule and we'll have to wait and see what 2021 has and beyond, but I think the important point here is that the regulators are looking into digital assets uh, a lot more deeply than maybe what we've seen in in prior periods. So with the SEC, we've seen also other governmental agencies like the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or OCC for short, provide guidance on a number of digital asset issues. Uh, In the middle of last year, the OCC provided guidance that greenlit a way for federally chartered banks to custody digital assets for their customers as well as allowing those banks to hold deposits that back certain types of digital assets. So all of these factors are contributing to what some may say is sort of a virtuous cycle for adoption or use of digital assets. As market participants get increased legal clarity for how to issue, how to hold, how to trade um, digital assets. You know, this all results in the level of comfort kind of going up and with the regulators providing more clarity, they can do so in a legally compliant way. So I think what we're seeing is, those factors are driving a bit of a convergence between digital assets and what we might think as traditional financial services.
0: So Kevin, do you keep mentioning greater adoption and sort of ironically, um, considering, you know, we're recording this podcast, I actually got a text this morning from my son, who's 18. Are there any restrictions on me buying like cryptocurrencies? Because obviously, everyone knows auditors, there's lots of restrictions on us, which I've coached him many times, I just saw this funny timing that all of a sudden, my son is now apparently wanting to trade cryptocurrencies, I guess, trading boom for everything.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny you bring up your your 18 year old, right? I think your 18 year old, along with a lot of other 18 year olds are interested in this, right? And I think it's it's not only the that sort of younger space, I think institutionally, we're seeing it very broadly, in terms of um, traditional financial players that really wouldn't have touched this years ago, become more interested, right? So you have insurance companies that have been around for hundreds of years almost, and look, they're looking into it. We're also seeing interest from a small minority of companies that are looking to use certain digital assets as part of their corporate treasury strategy. There's a lot that's wrapped up in that statement. We're also seeing and observing institutional interest from traditional financial entities, such as banks, that are looking to provide custody for digital assets, similar to what they already do for traditional financial instruments and certain commodities. And you have a lot of investment funds that are diversifying and looking at crypto as more of a Kind of alternative asset class, as well as rumors of universities and endowments going out and purchasing these things for their own investment. So I think, I think your son sort of highlights this broader theme, not only in the retail investor, but also institutionally. Many people are becoming more open to using this in their business.
0: Yeah. And I think all the more reason for all of us as accountants to better understand uh, what these are and then talk about accounting. But before we can even get into the accounting, I think Beth just fundamentally. What is a digital asset is something that is is very confusing.
2: Yeah, I think you're right, Heather. And, you know, there are various different kinds of digital assets and they're used for a variety of purposes. Probably the best known is what your son was looking at or is the cryptocurrency. And that's really a digital asset that may function as a medium of exchange. Something like a Bitcoin. And you might notice I use the phrase may function as a medium of exchange because to date, we're not really seeing it being used as a medium of exchange. More people are looking at it as a store of value or for value appreciation. But there are other types of digital assets that are being created and used. There are digital assets that are intended to function as a right to use something like a particular software, sometimes at a discount. And these digital assets are sometimes referred to as utility tokens. There's digital assets, which represent the right to an asset or a fraction of an asset. And sometimes people call these asset tokens, and they might be popular for things like real estate or works of art. Still, there's other digital assets that are created to represent you know, pecuniary interests, such as a right to a dividend or earnings. And these are called security tokens. And then finally, there's what's known as a stable coin. These digital assets include sort of a mechanism built into them to minimize price volatility. So they peg the value to another asset or To a fiat currency. And they may be collateralized by that fiat currency and redeemable into that currency. What I would say here is the word of caution is what it's called, you know, cryptocurrency, digital asset, that's not going to drive the accounting. You're going to really need to understand the rights if you're holding it or the obligations you're providing if you're issuing it to really determine the accounting for these digital assets.
0: All right. So I'm going to come back to the accounting, but two questions first on what you just said. So fiat currency, when you use that term for our listeners, what what do you mean when you say
2: that? So I mean things like US dollars or pegging it to a euro. So a, a currency that's issued by a government.
0: And then Beth, the other thing I think is always interesting to people when they think about this is you referenced it being used, like you could use it for like works of art or to almost like authenticate things. And can you give an example of how it's being used in that form?
2: Yeah, I think there's, you know, different uses for the underlying technology. So there are things where it will be used more to sort of track things through a supply chain. And then there are those tokens that might be issued to represent a piece or a fraction of something that has value. So a piece of art, maybe one person couldn't own it in its entirety, but they could own a piece of it through owning a digital token. Got it.
0: All right. So then with that sort of background, and I'm sure some people are still scratching their heads, but it'll become more clear, I think, as we talk about it, too. How do we start to think about this from an accounting perspective? Because obviously, when our various accounting standards were developed, this was not something that was on the minds of standard setters.
2: Right. So the accounting should capture the substance of the rights or the obligations associated with holding or issuing the digital asset. And so for a holder of a digital asset, you're going to have to consider what rights do you have and how those rights then fit into the gap framework. I think some holders sort of automatically assume that what they have is a financial instrument, but typically it isn't because many of these instruments or digital assets, they don't really represent the right to receive cash. And so they're not going to be a financial instrument or a financial asset. Rather, they're probably going to be an intangible. Gap defines intangibles as something that inherently lacks physical substance, which these do. And so they fall within that definition. But that might not always be the case. And that's why I'm saying you're really going to have to look at it. Those stable coins that I mentioned earlier, those might be a financial asset because some of those might have a right to actually be redeemed for cash and financial asset then may be eligible to be recorded at fair value, which is not the model you're in when you're in an intangible asset model. We're also hearing that some countries are considering issuing their own digital assets. And so we might eventually see some digital assets that become cash or cash equivalent.
0: So then Beth, I want to ask you about the intangible asset model, but it sounds like from what you're seeing, even if I say, okay, In general, or there's a presumption that these are intangible assets, it sounds like you really, like most things in accounting, need to understand the rights that you have before you reach a conclusion around what my accounting model looks like.
2: That's right. And, you know, it is such a new and evolving space that understanding those rights might be more challenging because there's a lack of, you know, regulation. There's a lack of case law. There's a lack of you know, bankruptcy analysis and those sorts of things to understand what your rights are in this new and evolving area.
0: And I guess, Kevin, that goes back to what you were saying is more institutional investors or companies get into this space, then all the more reason they really need to understand what it is they're getting into. This is not something you can kind of just jump into lightly without really understanding the landscape.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think the best point, right, a lot of times with these tokens or digital assets, there's a white paper, as they call it, which is, you know, like a 20 to 50 page summary of what they're designed to do. But that really doesn't get into the issues that Beth is raising around legally. What does that mean, right, in the context of bankruptcy and property law and so on? So I I think there's a lot of uh, due diligence to be done to further um, increase institutional adoption of these types of assets.
0: So then now, if we think, okay, let's presume for this conversation that I do have hold one of these assets and the intangible asset model is what makes sense. How do I think that through? What does the accounting look like?
2: Yeah. I mean, so since they will be an intangible asset, they're likely an indefinite lived intangible asset because they don't have sort of a defined period. So they're going to follow a model which records the acquisition of your digital asset at cost. And then the carrying value is going to be subject to either annual or trigger-based impairment tests. So basically, if the company or the individual that holds the digital asset observes a buy or sell transaction at a price below the acquisition cost, this would likely be a trigger to assess for um, impairment. And if the carrying value exceeds the fair value, a write-down is going to occur. So basically, what happens is the company has to record the write downs for impairments, but under an intangible asset model, they do not get to write record the write ups or you know the increases in fair value if there are subsequent recoveries of those losses. Rather, they're going to really have to wait until they sell the intangible and then they can recognize a gain or loss on the sale.
0: And then Beth, you might you may have mentioned this, but if I'm thinking about impairment, is it trigger based? Is it annual? How do I, how often do I need to assess this type of intangible or impairment.
2: Right. So an indefinite lived intangible is both an annual and a trigger base. But in these situations, we're seeing that oftentimes the trigger is what's going to be happening because you're going to observe transactions in a market or through other information that you have that might suggest that you have a trigger more frequently than just an annual test.
0: And then when you are talking about the fact that this is basically one way you write down and not up, I think immediately people are going to ask the question, well, then why aren't I following a fair value model? Because these things are fluctuating in value, and it doesn't seem to really reflect the substance if I'm writing down and I'm not writing up. So Kevin, you know, how should I be thinking about that? Why aren't we applying fair value to these?
1: Yeah, Heather, and I think you're hitting on sort of a common thing that we hear, which is this counterintuitive idea that you only get to write it down and not write it up, even though uh, many people are treating this more as uh, an investment, right? Like uh, it, it's technically not a financial instrument because there is no claim to cash here. It's only by the terms of the instrument just an intangible. So. You know, if you have to do all, uh, all these measurements of uh, fair value, it's important to know how you should do that. And I think intuitively people first start saying, well, well, I'll just get the price on whatever website where this is you know, displayed, which oftentimes is sort of inconsistent with how we think about the application, of the fair value framework. So overall, it starts out as something that seems very simple. But I think there could be a lot of complexity, actually, depending on the digital asset that you're looking at. So this is definitely one of those issues where, in theory, there's no difference between practice and theory. But in practice, there's a big difference.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, and I guess, Kevin, one thing you said that there's no claim to cash. And I just, just, again, to clarify, in some cases there could be, right? But that's what you mentioned. It's just that the main model that we're talking about is the cases where there's not, because that's the more common model. So, again, for a listener, if, if your company is holding these, make sure you understand exactly what you're holding. But to the extent there isn't a claim for cash, then you have to apply this intangible model.
1: That's right. So in terms of um, figuring out how you do fair value and how you measure fair value for digital assets, it's very similar to any other asset. So we would apply the fair value guidance that exists as it is today. Um, and we would, as a first point, start to figure out whether or not there's an active market. And what that means is that there's a market where the digital asset is traded you know, with sufficient frequency and volume that it provides pricing information on a fairly regular basis. So there's some interpretive and judgmental issues as, as associated with figuring out whether you have that sufficient frequency and volume. So there's no bright lines. And so for certain assets, whether it may be traded a little bit more thinly or the information associated with that um, asset is not verifiable or, or there's challenges associated with figuring out whether that trade data is good, fair value starts to become a little bit more difficult. The, the additional thing I might mention for listeners is that when there's several markets, you'll need to figure out which is your principal market. So for certain digital assets, there's a variety of exchanges that are that are set up um, through different companies and you can trade them. Uh, so there is no like one market, right, for certain digital assets. So users would need to figure out which market has the greatest volume and level of activity. And that would be the principal market that you would use for purposes of determining fair value.
0: And then just to be clear again, because since people are listening, sometimes like to repeat, when we talk about fair value here, it is for the purpose of an impairment test. It's not for necessarily, as we said, recording these at fair value, but it's for assessing if you have impairment. And so assuming I'm doing my impairment test, one of the things that immediately comes to mind is that there could be high volatility with the prices here. So Kevin, if I'm thinking about that, impairment testing and fair value, what are some of the pitfalls that I should be considering?
1: One thing that we've seen is that there's certain uh, digital assets, like I was saying, they're traded on a variety of exchanges. So they may be traded in South Korea at one place, and maybe traded in Japan at another, in the US and another. So for a lot of stocks and bonds, right, typically they're traded on one market and it's pretty easy. You can figure out where you need to go. Um, so some websites have taken all these different markets and aggregated or combine these prices on sort of a weighted average basis. And people think like, well, that's the best information. It's the most information, right? I have all of these different exchanges that I'm using, but that's again, inconsistent with how we would apply the fair value framework. So I think as a pitfall, call it, it's avoiding that composite or average pricing and applying the fair value model and then documenting it up front. I think that the, from not only from an accounting perspective, but also from a controls perspective, getting this all on paper up front and establishing a methodology is going to save people a lot of heartache and hassle um, if they choose to invest in digital assets in the, on the latter end.
0: Um, so then if we go back to the point of price volatility, let's say I go back to what Beth said, and there's a trigger because the price has dropped. But then what if the price rebounds in the same period? How do I think about that type of volatility? Do I have to see a sustained decline? Or even if it's just like a one-day drop, do I need to consider that?
2: Yeah, when we think about fair value and triggers for indefinite lived intangibles, it isn't an other than temporary impairment model. So a decline in value on one day could be a trigger, and then you need to record the asset at fair value. If it recovers the next day, unfortunately, you can't write it back up. You're sort of stuck at that lower value.
0: So I think, Beth, talking about these price changes, again, is just another reason, highlights what Kevin was just mentioning around the fact that you really need to make sure you have the right controls and processes in place before you just jump into either transacting as some type of cryptocurrency or investing in cryptocurrency, as as we know, we're starting to see more of.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point, Heather, because companies are really going to need to think about what is their process for monitoring triggers for declines in value and potential um, impairments.
0: Right. Okay. So then that's definitely one issue to think about. What other types of considerations do holders have to consider or someone who's considering holding cryptocurrency need to think about before they engage in that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's just a variety of things companies will have to think about because as we've talked about, the accounting really didn't contemplate these types of assets. And so for instance, Sometimes companies are using a custodian. You know, they don't want to take access to that private key. They want a custodian to have that for them for security and um, safety reasons. And so, They really do need to think about how does that impact, if at all, their accounting. And I will give a shout out to the AICPA's practice aid here because they have a question that provides some criteria to consider in determining whether one has control and ownership of a digital asset when they're using a custodian. And it talks about things like, are the assets isolated in bankruptcy from the you know the custodian's accounts, you know what are the legal agreements around it? Like, what does your contract with the custodian say? Is there any case law that you can look to? And so, I just think given the newness of these assets, this an- analysis can actually be quite challenging. And so, a company might want to even speak with you know internal or external counsel to get their perspectives on whether or not they they have control of that asset and ownership of it and should be recording it appropriately.
0: And I think we can include a reference to this practice aid in the the show notes. One thing that came to mind though, Beth, when you were talking about that is again, when we agreed that we were going to do this podcast, of course, I started seeing articles everywhere as it tends to happen. And one of them was around this thing of people losing their passwords. And so you own cryptocurrency, but back I guess, full circle, Kevin, to where we started with the blockchain and the fact that there's not like a custodian. If I lose my password, I don't have a way to access what it is I'm holding. And is that something you guys hear people talking about? Or it feels like it's something else that needs to be considered if you're going to be holding this type of um, asset?
1: Yeah, maybe I can start. So I think, um, as you kind of rightly highlighted, Beth, there's there's concern around a private key or a password, right? A passphrase that proves or allows the person with that passphrase to move assets around out of a particular account in that distributed ledger, right? So if you lose the password, it's gone. And and there's articles about vast sums of fortunes really that have been lost because somebody threw their hard drive away that had their had their password on it, right? So I think by and large, when we think about the institutional space, a lot of people want to avoid that um either from having that passphrase being disclosed unintentionally or intentionally, there's a lot of fraud and other issues that can arise from that. So, so because of all these issues, I think a lot of institutions want to go with more of a custodial type approach. And that's why I think the issue that's Beth highlighting it around figuring out whether you really own it, whether you should be on your balance sheet, whether you shouldn't is critical. Everyone in the institutional space will likely touch this issue. And so it's something you have to kind of figure out because it's not always intuitive, just like a lot of things in blockchain, where you think you own it and maybe you don't when you kind of get into the details. So another uh important plug for the importance of details in these types of things.
0: So then a related question that comes to mind is I know we're starting to see some companies that are accepting Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies just, you know, in payment in exchange for goods or services. So how do I think about that, Beth, if I'm a company that's starting to receive that type of an asset?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if you're a company and you're considering receiving that type of asset for payment for your goods or services, You're going to want to think about the revenue recognition model in that what you're receiving is a non-cash consideration. And so that gets measured at fair value at the contract inception date. And then any changes in fair value after contract inception wouldn't impact your revenue. Rather, if what you've received is an intangible asset, changes through impairment would would be impairments, they wouldn't go through the revenue line. But again, here, it's getting tricky, because some of what you receive, you might have to think about whether there's some sort of embedded derivative, is there some sort of piece that's, you know, readily convertible to cash, depending on how these markets develop. So certainly a lot of analysis to be done.
0: On that note, then any other sort of pitfalls or things companies should be thinking about if they're either investing or transacting in these types of um, assets?
1: So I'll I'll leave a parting thought with just the importance of controls and processes here. So don't underestimate the amount of work it takes to get those controls and processes set up. Um, Work closely with your auditors to ensure um, that they understand what you're doing. And then lastly, some people think that there's certain industry guidance that they might be able to afford themselves of, particularly with respect to broker dealers. So some entities may be buying and selling crypto or digital assets and think that that applies to them. But a note of caution would be that A lot of um, broker dealers, at least up until this point, kind of going back to my earlier point that I mentioned in the uh, first part of the podcast around the regulatory landscape changing here, is that many were not legal broker dealers and may not be able to apply that industry guidance. So it's something to be careful um, and thoughtful about, both in conjunction with the accounting guidance, as well as making sure legally you understand how you're regulated.
0: All right, and then maybe it's just a final question, and this is not something I normally ask when we're talking about accounting, but I think in this case, maybe it makes sense that is, if you Guys, both look in your crystal balls and you think about the use of of cryptocurrency or potential regulation or really just what we can expect to see in this landscape over, let's say, the next one to two years. Again, crystal ball. So this is just your opinion. does not have to um, be grounded in specific fact. Just curious what you guys think. And maybe, Kevin, I'll start with you and then Beth, go to you.
1: Sure. Uh, I just hope you won't have me back to prove me wrong on all these things that I'm about to say.
0: (laughs) No, I'm taking notes. So, yeah. a year from now, well, I'll bring you the back. Fire.
1: So, I, I think there might be a few areas we will see in the future. Um, one, I think that crypto will probably be used more to help facilitate remittances. So, international transactions that would normally take a long time and require many intermediaries, I think um, we'll see it. Now, I don't think that that crypto or digital asset is what we would think of today as like Bitcoin being used to facilitate those, but maybe more as digital assets that are backed with currencies or stable coins, as they're called. So I think we may see more usage of those. The other thing and is somewhat related is that I think we might start to see more central banks get serious about digital assets. We've seen in, in China in particular that the People's Bank of China has been um, doing a pilot for a digital yuan, referred to as the Digital Currency Electronic Payment, or DCEP. So, you know, there's other industry organizations that are out there that have looked into this and reported that something to the tune of 80% of central banks are in some form looking at cent- uh, these central bank digital currencies. So, you know, if those were used, it, it could really uh, be quite impactful, not only from a convenience use, but it may also change the way we think about um, financial services today. So that would be my macro crystal ball comment.
0: So it's interesting. I actually read an article today just about how the pandemic has caused a precipitous decline in the use of cash, like, you know, physical currency. And I guess, Kevin, this idea of sort of a central bank backed cryptocurrency sort of supports that. Other than when now I think about all the issues you guys mentioned, I can't even imagine if it starts to become like a widely used, I'll say, quote, currency, what what that may mean. So we'll see. I'll bring you back to ask. And then, Beth, anything to add to Kevin's thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess if I look at my crystal ball, I think when we think about how things like Bitcoin started, right, to be an unregulated, non-financial markets type transaction, I suspect we're going to bring in some of those players because as you mentioned, Heather, people aren't going to want to lose their password and lose their key and lose their investments. People don't like the idea of not having things that are secured or backed by some sort of clear regulation of what they own. And so I think that that over time will bring parties in to help, right? I'll want a custodian to keep my key safe and protected so I don't lose my investment. And as we do that, we'll build a new industry around this crypto landscape.
0: Well, definitely more to come. Very interesting topic. And I know, Beth, you... We're uh, led writing a point of view on this a year or two ago that we published, but I think still very helpful. So we'll also include reference to that in the show notes for people who want to read more from an accounting perspective. But otherwise, thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for tuning in. If you're interested in learning more about cryptocurrency, including potential considerations for standard setters, check out our point of view titled cryptocurrency, time to consider plan B. You can find it on our new information sharing website, viewpoint.pwc.com. Join me back here every Tuesday for new episodes on all things accounting and reporting. And on Thursdays, join me for our forecast 2021 series for CFOs and controllers. This Thursday, we're focusing on the E and ESG by talking about net zero emissions. So that you never miss an episode of any of our podcasts, subscribe to the PwC Accounting Podcast Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved.